0: So in this series on the healings of Jesus, we've seen that more often than not, the healing itself is not the point. Rather, every heal is a reveal of something even greater yet to come. And and this idea that every heal is a reveal of something greater could hardly be any clearer than it is in the passage today. I do invite you, please, to turn to Matthew. We're in Matthew 9, verse 27. And you see that verse 27, it just simply says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. So we're meant to understand from this, it's implied that what they want is very obvious. They want to see. But the response of Jesus is actually very different from a similarly obvious situation just two weeks ago. Very similar situation, different response, why? Two weeks ago, when he met a paralyzed man, it was equally obvious what the paralyzed man wanted, and that was to walk. But in that case, if you remember, two weeks ago, in our time, not his, Jesus, bypassing the physical needs of the man, addressed a deeper need instead, and that was his sin. And then it was only when challenged on his ability to forgive sins, something only God could possibly do that Jesus also said to the paralyzed man, get up, walk. So that the healing of his body and the healing of his sins together revealed who Jesus really was, revealed that he was who he claimed to be. So here we are again, very similar situation, very obvious problem. If the pattern works, Two people approach Jesus with an obvious physical condition, even somewhat typecast by it, just like the paralyzed man. The blind men don't even get a name. They're they're characterized by their condition. They're just blind men. Surely Jesus is going to find some other thing that we didn't notice to address first, deal with that, cause a stir, and then do the healing in public so that we all know who he really is join a few dots that otherwise would not get joined by just a mere physical healing alone. He doesn't do that. Why? Why does he treat a very similar situation in a very different way? What's going on? Why would he do it? Uh, The answer is, why does Jesus not join all these dots? The answer is because they've already done it for him. If you look closely, they say in verse 27, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Son of David, arguably the most significant thing that anyone has said about Jesus thus far in Matthew's gospel. In fact, I would suggest that revealing that he is the Son of David has been Matthew's intention since the beginning of the gospel. Uh, Don't lose, please, where we are in chapter 9, but you could just flick back to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 1.1, the beginning of the New Testament. Look at how the New Testament begins. Matthew may not have known that that was going to be the beginning of the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit did. Matthew 1.1, the book of, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There's that phrase, the son of Abraham. It's a summary sentence. It's a headline. It's, uh, here's what the news is all about telling us that Matthew's very clear stated purpose and intention is to let us know who Jesus really is, to prove it. The the Christ, or the Messiah, was the promised one, anointed by God, promised long ago, who would come to restore Israel and to rule the nation. And King David, who is the greatest king in, in Scripture, was promised that the Messiah would descend from him be born in his city, be born of his lineage, that would be him. Bethlehem, son of David, city of David. It's all focused on him. We call this the Davidic covenant or Davidic promise. Son of David, the son of David, David knew one day would sit on his throne, but unlike him, his throne would endure forever. That is the promise to him. And if you go back even further still, back beyond David, like Matthew does, further up the lineage to to David's great-great-grandfather, to Abraham. Abraham also got a covenant promise, the Abrahamic promise, or covenant we call this. The promise to Abraham one day to, to give him many nations, to draw all of the nations to him, to give him as many descendants as there are stars in the sky And these great covenant promises of the Old Testament, the promise to Abraham and the promise to David, are woven together throughout the pages of the Old Testament, building up for us an intimate, rich, multi-layered image of one Holy One, one Messiah, one Lord, who would come in human form to bless the nations, one who would be a king on a throne whose authority would exist without bounds. These are the promises of God. And the people of God came to see that this reign of the son of David, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the Holy One of Israel, the reign would be characterized by glory and by peace and above all by the restoration of the people of God. The implications of this great promise of the Old Testament range from that which is beyond our ability to comprehend in terms of the glory of his throne, the crystal sea, the flashes of lightning, all of that, down to the most tiny, almost insignificant, intimate, personal touch for you and you alone. These are the promises of God, a promise that encapsulates all that there is and just you alone. Our psalm for today, the psalm appointed today, Psalm 146, actually captures these extremes rather well in the way that it begins and ends, taking it in reverse. The Lord, the psalmist sings, shall be king forevermore. There's the eternal king. And the Lord gives sight to the blind. Just you, if that's what it takes. So when these two guys were back in Matthew 9, when these two guys say, have mercy on us, son of David, what that means is they've joined these dots. They have laid hold of some of the depths of these interwoven old covenant promises to Abraham and to David, and they've figured out who Jesus is. You are the one that we have been waiting for. They could not have made a bigger claim. There was nothing greater they could have said about who Jesus really is. Look carefully how Jesus responds. He does not say, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Let's slow down here. What are you talking about? That's crazy talk. He does not rebuke them. He just says, are you sure? They go, yep. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done for you. Verse 30, and their eyes were opened, and that's it. That's the healing, because the healing is not the point. The healing is merely a revealing that what they observed was true he really is who they say he is so it's very simple and when i read the passage i thought what else am i going to say it really is that clear but uh, there are at least three quite strange unexpected little things going on in the passage that might be worth looking at first did you see that when they shouted, Son of David, crying aloud in the street, he ignored them at first? Did you see that? I mean, it's sort of implied they followed him, but he didn't stop. Uh, Jesus is the God of mercy who, who heals the blind. That's what the psalm says. Here's two blind people, and they say, Please heal me. So, you know, we're kind of set up, right? <laughs> We know how this is going to end. And Jesus initially completely blanks them, refuses even to engage them at all. This is the same Jesus that two weeks ago in our time started a fight with the religious elite by claiming to be God and then proving it in front of them. And here he is ignoring people. It's only once they're behind closed doors that he verifies their claim by restoring their sight. Then he does something else very strange. Verse 30, he sternly warned them. There is a finger wag in the image here. Uh, A very serious command, a frightening command, I think, actually, from the king of the universe, directly to them in their faces, and they can see him now. See that no one knows about it. That's the first thing they're supposed to see as their eyes are opened, that no one knows about this thing. So what did they do? Verse 31, they went away and spread his fame through all the district. Wow. (laughs) You know, that's brave, (laughs) is it not? Uh, Anyone who has children can probably sympathize with this. I want you to stop screeching, go upstairs, brush your teeth, shut up and go to bed. Half an hour later, what are they doing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, people are starting to mouth their own experiences. In our case, naked water fight in the street. <laughs> uh, in all this artwork, all this horrible cheesy artwork, you know, California Jesus with the pearly white teeth. He's got all this long, lustrous, thick flowing hair. Uh, I'd be amazed if he had any left at all, to be honest. After this, he'd torn it all out. he got Me and Brad's regimental haircut is perfect, sir. What are the fantastic haircuts? The best I've ever seen. (laughs) Lovely. Everyone should have that. Um, You know, how has he got anything left? The patience of our God. I sternly warn you, don't do this. Okay. And they go and do the opposite. Unbelievable. How quickly we can turn from a revelation of the majesty of God and an experience of the intimacy of God and just run away directly and disobey him. Church, we're going to be doing it before the end of this service. We're going to be sinning. We're at it now. If I just shut up and give you 30 seconds, you'll come up with something. Like, I will too. This is what we do. We, we, we disobey. We disappoint. And we don't know why they do it, um, you know. Obviously, they could hardly hide it. These are blind people, now they can see. I'm I'm wondering if their joy just overwhelms them. I mean, this is a miracle after all. Uh, It could just be, and I postulate the idea, that the command sternly to make sure no one knows about it is the weirdest thing they've ever heard in all of their lives. And they just cannot internalize any cogency to this. And so, within five minutes, they say to each other, he he can't amend it, right? It's just so strange. If every heel is designed to reveal who God really is, why conceal the reveal? It doesn't make any sense. Scholars describe this stern injunction as something called the messianic secret. The idea is that he is the Messiah, he is the eternal king, the holy one of Israel, the hope of the nations. But it's not yet time for anyone to know this. He's still got some teaching to do about this role. He's still got some discipleship to do to prepare people for what comes next. He doesn't want to be rushed onto a throne or forced into a conflict before the time. Ultimately, the Messiah is going to be enthroned in a way that no one understood until it happened. They did not yet know that dealing with sin would involve him taking it upon himself. They had no idea that this taking away of pain and taking away of shame and taking away of death would involve him taking on every single one of those things. They didn't know that. They had no idea that the essence of what it is to be an exalted king is to be humble and to serve, and that instead of being seated on a throne, he'd be hung upon a cross. They had no idea about that. So Jesus seeks to limit the scale of the reveal until the right time. It's too soon. Do they get everything? No. Do they obey anything? Clearly not. They're a little bit like us, aren't they, these two fellows? Partial knowledge coupled with some fairly brazen direct disobedience. they get enough for Jesus to call them people of faith. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that encouraging? If it's been sin week in Fox Chapel for you, is that not encouraging? What a thing. He says to them in verse 29, according to your faith be it done for you. Clearly not according to your works, according to your innate goodness, according to your obedience. But faith, this is why they get in on the kingdom of God. And the amazing thing is, possibly the strangest thing here in all of this healing, is that of all the people in the world to get this, it's these two fellas It's not the lawyers and the scholars and the priests who could join all of these dots in their sleep and say, ah, well, I remember what the prophet Isaiah says, and look at Psalm 146, and, oh, look at that, and he did this. this. You know, they could have joined these dots in their sleep, but they didn't see it. It's not the disciples of John the Baptist that Ben was looking at briefly last week, whose actual job it was to prepare the way for the Messiah. They didn't get it. It's not even the disciples of Jesus himself who've seen him raise the dead and cast out the demons, and they've had fireside chats every single night dissecting these miracles that they've seen. They've had a front row seat to the kingdom of God. Get the popcorn out, boys. It's going to be a good one today. They didn't join the dots. Of all the people that would first let us know who Jesus really is, it is two blind blokes sitting on the side that don't even get a name able to see what no one else could see. What an amazing thing. So as we draw to a close, I just want to say why I think that might be. Why might it be that these two are the first to see? I've come to realize that actually it's often when we're at our lowest point, when we're at our most vulnerable, that God shows up. When our bodies and our minds uh, our marriages or our jobs are letting us down. That's when we cry out for mercy. These are the moments that we're more prepared, I think, to, to see God. There's something about needing Him that gives us insight into who He really is that uh, otherwise I think we might not have. And I think about these two guys. I just wonder how many other people in that town, busy with their lives, selling things in the market, bringing in the catch, building up the walls, arguing about the law, had the Messiah walk right past them, and they didn't notice. Just think, how many people with vision didn't see? C.S. Lewis once said, this is always the bit where I know, George will say it's a good sermon. C.S. Lewis once said, we love him, don't we? Uh, He once said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. Isn't that beautiful? God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. Writing, of course, following great personal grief of his own. Uh, I don't think he, C.S. Lewis, or I am suggesting that pain is a good thing, but we are suggesting that it can be very difficult to see Jesus when things are going well. If we feel no need for mercy, we'll see no need for God, and uh, that is always going to be the case. I'm going to offer a deeper idea, if I may, and I don't want you just to accept it. I want you to chew on it and discuss it and uh, see if if any aspect of this is true. I wonder if uh, it could be there is an even greater advantage to our pain when it turns out we are the ones that caused it. If your life is falling apart, and it turns out that actually you wrecked it, that might be an even more advantageous place to see Jesus. Now, we've seen this with the kids. When they make a mistake, they get proud, they come up with ridiculous excuses. Oh, well, this happened, or this happened, or, or they divert, well, really, you know, she did something even worse. When they, when they do all the chicanery and the tricks to get out of trouble, like, it just is gross. Well, like, you know, It's a reflection of our own sin as much as anything else. We see this we're like, Ugh, how have we created these sin bags? <laughs> but you know when they admit it, even just a little bit, when they say, you know what? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Was, I don't know why I did that. Uh, or, or even better, they come to us and tell us before we find out. It's just, the room just gets smaller. We just, we just want to love them. we are just so proud of that wh- when, they, when they do this thing. Um, I've come to realize I think I like people more when they're failing than when they're doing well, which uh, probably means I'm in the right job. <laughs> um, you know I think I'm more likable when I'm getting things wrong than when I'm getting things right. Who, wa- who wants to come and, and hear, like, oh, guess what I did today? Aren't I great? That's just gross. No one wants that. Uh, in the small groups that we do in, in church, and we've got many, and we're launching more, uh, th- th- I I've, I've just see the group respond with mercy and with grace when someone confesses a sin. Every time we're in a group, there's that moment where someone just gets real, and then the room gets smaller, the room gets more intimate, more tender, when that takes place, far more than when people come in with a boast. It just, just doesn't work. There is an ancient word uh, to describe this thing, it's sort of somewhat dated and out of fashion now, This th- to describe this notion of, 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 you know, confessing sins and getting something wrong and letting everyone know about it. And we, we call this thing Christian. This is what we are. It's what we do. Never have I seen someone in our church confess a sin or reveal a, a wound or a need And then seen the group turn their backs on them and say, well, we don't want that kind of talk around here. Thank you very much. Ever since day one of arriving in this church, our charism has been grace. It's just every church has got a thing. That's our thing. It's in our DNA. So if you've come here today feeling like your life is falling apart, I do not think that is a good thing, Obviously. I certainly do not think that is God's ultimate place for you in your life, but I do think it is a great place to see Jesus. It really is. And therefore, from which to be restored, I'd like to pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you reveal your deep mysteries to the strangest of folk. And uh, that sometimes, perhaps, it's when things seem beyond us that we... Fall out to you. Lord Jesus, we have the disadvantage of being a sophisticated people in this Western world. But I pray, Lord, that you would not just walk right past and we would be so busy that we fail to see you. Please give us a sight to see you. And Lord Jesus, if, if it's pain that gives us that sight, we thank you that you are the God of restoration and we're bold to pray for restoration also. In your name. Amen.